Hello, and welcome to Literacy Landscapes. I'm the host and creator, Johanna. On Literacy Landscapes, we re-examine literacy theory and watch it in action today. We'll give you an inside look into the classroom and take you outside to where play and practice meet. It brings me great pleasure to introduce you to our guest on this episode, experienced social studies educator, author, and fellow podcaster, David Sherritt. What would you like the audience to know about you? Hey, Joanna, thanks for having me. I, first of all, I love hearing you talk about play. So the first thing I'd want people to know is I try to bring as much play into high school social studies as I possibly can. I think by the time we get to high school, people forget about the fact that these are still young people and kids and and they need to play. Otherwise about me, just that just that I'm I'm a teacher. I've been teaching for about 20 years, but I'm also someone who likes to create things. So whether it's writing or doing the podcast or a couple of picture books that I have coming out next year, I I have this kind of creative side that I found I think a little bit later in life, somewhere in my late 20s, early 30s. I'm not sure that that I got much of that cultivated in school, but I kind of found it, I think, as I was teaching. Yeah, I, I can sh- I share that with you. I feel like becoming a teacher for me also 20 plus years pulled me out of my shell. I was extremely shy, like my entire schooling. It's very quiet, very shy, kind of like falling into the background kind of a mm-hmm. student. And it really enhanced my openness and my creativity. And I'm thrilled to hear that it kind of like that teaching kind of inspired that. And I really look forward to hearing kind of what what that looked like for you and what it looks like now. But before we do that, one of my common questions, um, and I'll share an example with you, is uh, so one of my common questions has to do with uh, an important childhood story to you. It could be one from your own childhood or one that you r- read to your students or your children. Uh, for me, I always talk about this book that was on reading Rainbow that, that could be worse. And I also was inspired by like Shel Silverstein and The Giving Tree. And I realized that these books, like they, they're children's books, but they have these life lessons that I feel like I go back to in my head all the time. Is there a story or a song that has special meaning to you? Very easy to identify. The story is Star Wars. <laughs> that 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 was a story that I watched and rewatched and watched and rewatched over and over and over again as a child. And it uh, I really dug into every aspect of the characters and the story. And yeah, it it that was back when you had maybe just a couple of movies on on VHS that you could uh, pop into the into the VCR and watch over the summertime over and over and over again. So for me, it was Goonies and Star Wars. Oh my gosh, David, we have so much in common. Not only do I have a a little Obi-Wan here on my desk, but hold on, I'm going to see if I could pull it down. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that's a big... uh... So I have a baby Yoda that my husband bought me when I defended my dissertation and it's actually going strong. Like the helium hasn't left completely, um, (laughs) but I'm a huge... Star Wars fan too. And these enduring stories are just um, so powerful. And um, I think relates so much to the stories we tell in classrooms, the stories, right? And certainly the the social studies 
curriculum and how we bring it to life. And one thing that you talk about in your book has to do with engagement. Um, Mm -hmm. So I really want to hear all about the ways in which you engage your students in the literacies of social studies. And when I refer to social, uh, to literacies, I talk about reading, writing, speaking, and listening all together. And I'm very much inspired by Frere and Macedo's ideas of literacy and education as cultural expressions and their their text, reading the word and reading the world, this concept of, of the two as interconnected. So how do you engage students in the worlds of social studies, which is so big? <laughs> yeah, that, that's a big question. And I think it's changed over time in my teaching. Like you, I've been teaching for about 20 years, but I basically said that there are only two things I feel like work with all students. And I guess they both involve literacy in some way. And I have to admit, I've written about both of them. One of them is role play. Um, So my first book was about uh, using role play, role plays in social studies in English. And I do a kind of unique form of role play, which is a Dungeons and Dragons style role play that I created for history classes and, and have done, I think, to a good amount of success with my class. And the other one is authentic assessment, which is which is my recent book. And what that's talking about is really using all the different forms, allowing students to produce all the different forms of histories that historians actually produce, rather than limiting them to the most, what we consider traditional, which isn't actually the most traditional form of history, which is, is formal writing. There are other forms of history that are more traditional. So I think those are, are two ways that I really try to engage them in, in different forms of literacy. Can you expand on that? Because I'm really interested in this idea of what a traditional historical writing or text might look like versus what you say is is less or more traditional. Sure. Well, when we think of what historians do, we think of writing either a book or an academic journal article. And the version that we have students do of that is writing either a five paragraph essay or writing um, a research paper. And both of those are considered to be authentic assessment or authentic literacy, which is better than just taking tests, right? They're actually doing some, they're actually doing a form of literacy that the people in the field do, which is to write. But okay, so if we're gonna look at how did, how have most history been produced over time? It's been oral history. Right. So before there was writing, there were the ancient Greek poets, Homer um, doing the Iliad and the Odyssey, which he had received from the people before him through oral transmission. You have West African griots like the Sundiata. Um, You have oral traditions in India like the the Bhagavad Gita, the Mahabharata, the Ramayana, all of those were oral traditions. So that's actually more traditional than written history, right? But then we kind of give such primacy to to text. So that's one thing. And then there are all these other ways that people have been producing history throughout humanity, such as artwork, right? Our oldest um, historical documents we have are probably cave paintings, which are visual arts and then you have poetry like the Iliad for example which I mentioned or the Ramayana those are both poems 
so they're not formal writing um and and sculptures monuments uh even what we do in the classroom which is as a teacher we are sharing history by speaking right we can go college professors are talking to their class so just oral communication of course is another way and there's so many more i could go into but thank you that's really helpful to me and to the audience i'm sure um and very something i didn't think about and you're right i mean i analyzed the new york state summative assessments mm -hmm. and back in the 90s the dbqs were introduced now it's these enduring issues but again they're essays right mm -hmm. so multiple choice questions and essays are prioritized and yet or the the oral history aspect is so important if we think back to the traditions of of historical communication yeah and I, actually i open up my book for example with the the only source that most of us know about the Spanish Civil War, right? Which is something I don't think many people in America today know mu that much about. And if you're listening mm. and you're thinking, where do I know anything about the Spanish Civil War? It's probably not from a book about that. It's from Pablo P Picasso's Guernica painting. Right. Is, Good point. And so that so so we gain so much knowledge from all these other forms of producing history or movies by Steven Spielberg or so many of the, of the, of the other great filmmakers who are making movies these days or and let me throw one more out there where I'm learning so much from and that's podcasts, right? <laughs> Which is for oral, sure. oral communication. Yeah, that's a really good point. And you mentioned art and you have a whole chapter on art in your authentic assessment mm -hmm. text. Um, and one thing that it made me think about was we know that there is domain specific language in relation to social studies and in history specifically. And have you found that the use of art or other modalities has been helpful in helping students to hone their understanding of those domain specific terms. Um, can you speak to like, what are the ways that you help the students understand some of these really important um, terms and concepts uh, in history and social studies? So if we're talking there about things like evidence or argument. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a big that's a big piece of what I do. So one of the one of the concerns or critiques that teachers or potential teachers will raise when I bring up the possibility of them having of them making a sculpture or doing a painting or something of the sort is, well, how can I grade that? And what what if what if the student is how I know if the student is producing a high quality piece of art? And my answer is it's the same as writing. It's so I have a rubric, for example, that has very similar standards that I'm looking for in terms of thesis, argument, use, selection of evidence, use of evidence. Um, and then and then the quality of the language, right? And the quality of the language could be written language. It could be uh, artistic language through painting, whatever it may be. But you can have 
in the same way you can have a student produce a piece of writing that is beautiful writing, but doesn't have a huge amount of content, not just a student, anyone who's producing it, the same thing can go with art, right? They could produce a beautiful piece of art that is just a portrait of Gandhi or Stalin and tells you absolutely nothing about what happens, has no argument whatsoever. It's just they've they've done a really nice portrait of this historical figure. And that is not using strong evidence or argument, right? So, so a piece of artwork, just like a piece of writing in history, should have a question it's trying to answer. It should have a thesis. And it should have evidence that tries to answer that thesis. And that evidence in, let's say, a painting comes through symbolism. It comes through things that they choose to put into the painting. And they may need to explain it a little bit through an artist statement or something like that if it's more abstract. But but it can help them um, see how the same student can produce two pieces of art that are both beautiful, but one has a much stronger argument and demonstrates an understanding of the content that another um, piece by the same student might not. Thank you so much. That's really so powerful. And I think we tend to, I see it a lot in elementary levels, and I don't see it as much in secondary levels. And we know that students learn through different modalities and through, we, we talk about UDL, right? Universal Design for Learning. We talk about multiple access points. Mm-hmm. And yet, <laughs> I know I I know that time can be a challenge. I know there's a curriculum to cover, but you're, I'm hearing an engagement strategy that can be really powerful. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's funny that you bring up elementary school because I I think I say somewhere in the book too. Part of my goal is to get high school social studies teachers to teach more like elementary school teachers. <laughs> if we, if we think about where our kids are just learning and incredible amount it's in elementary school those teachers know what they're doing and <laughs> oftentimes by the time the kids get to high school they're losing all of those rich opportunities that that they had in elementary school not surprisingly we see their interests start to wane a bit too if it's if it's lecture test essay lecture test essay lecture test essay and and there's so many other things we can do to, to engage them. And, and I think that the, I think that the learning, the effort that they put in, the amount of meaning that they can produce is so much higher when they're given these opportunities. It's not like I never give a test or I never have them do a formal essay. Of course I do those things too, but it's providing these opportunities at a certain frequency throughout the year that I think is important for students. I, I couldn't agree more. I, started to incorporate more play in and games and those kinds of practices um, towards the end of my um, high school teaching experiences before I became an administrator. And one of the most powerful, I'll never forget it. I had just, it was a great group of students. I'll admit it. And I had them for two years. I looped with them. So that was like, we had really established, I have to like, I feel like I have to contextualize it. However, mm -hmm. Uh, I taught them in 11th grade and it was the, uh, the American novel. And we read, you know, the great Gatsby and uh, actually we read the jungle that year. So I brought in history as well um, and, and tried to make all those connections, the crucible. Um, by the end of the year, I said, you know what? 
you're going to work in groups and you're going to create a game board. You're going to create a game. And the goal of the game, uh, in quotes, is the American dream, according mm. to the novels. And I left it as broad as that. And I, and they had to use textual evidence from the text. They had to define whether you could meet the American dream, whether it's a real thing, whether, you know, how does the, how do the texts, um, how do they present it? And I have never seen that level of excitement in students in a really long time. And yeah. it made me reflect on my own lessons mm -hmm. and my own projects. And, you know, I took a leap when I did it. I thought, uh, is it going to be well-received? Am I going to get pushback? Am I going to be questioned? <laughs> and here I was seeing students like opening up their books and looking for evidence and really thinking critically and all hands on deck, really excited to do this work. Uh, and it was really powerful. Yeah. And that's another example. Board games are, they're history board games. I mean, it's just once you open your eyes to this, you realize, obviously you're talking about English, but once you open your eyes to this, you realize, wow, these adults are having so much fun creating. And then our kids who love play and by high school, what play looks like for teenagers is different than what play looks like for elementary school students. Play for teenagers is working in a group like that. And having that interaction and creating yeah. something into intellectual in that way is really play for them, but getting getting to create. And so I think I think what you did there, yeah, it's it's and then you see, wow, what they produce is surprising. It's rich. And what I love is when my students do something that's better than what I can do. If they're always writing a formal essay with a rare exception I can do a better five paragraph essay than my than my students and I have some great students maybe maybe not always but for the most part and but when they're creating art like this then time and time again I can just sit back and say wow and then you learn something about the kid. You learn about the passion that they have. Yes. You learn about something that they care about. And you learn about this talent, which sometimes is just extraordinary. And oftentimes I'll give them a set list of, okay, here are the formats that I usually think of that most students choose. And then someone else will come, hey, can I make a video game, right? Which isn't on my list, but they know how they do coding and then they make a video game. So they also bring in new formats that I haven't thought of. It's great. The energy, even hearing you talk about it is, <laughs> is, is so exciting. Yeah. One of the things I focused on in my doctoral work, focused on actual written, like expository mm -hmm. writing and the challenges of it. Uh, and across content areas, by and large, it can be difficult or it has the, the research has demonstrated that there could be it could be challenging to teach writing. Sure. Uh, and you suggest a lot of great, some of them are like SRSD strategies. You suggest some self-regulated uh, strategies for writing. Uh, what are some strategies that you've found to be effective in supporting students with? Uh, what I've experienced is students struggle with like thesis development, organizing ideas, finding the right evidence. I don't know if you've experienced kind of the same ideas, but what have you found to be helpful and what challenges have you found? 
Yeah, that's such a great question. And I think it's something that hopefully all teachers should be struggling with all the time. And that if we if we decide, oh, I figured out the answer to this, you really got to question yourself a little bit, because I've worked with really um, in high need schools in the city. And now I'm out in Scarsdale and in, in Westchester, which is a very high performing school. So I've really worked with the range of students. And I've worked in schools where we had really structured kind of boxes for students to write in. And over time, I've moved away from that, not just because of the, the different students I'm working with, but also from talking to other colleagues who, who advocated for a more authentic, open approach. And now I think I have one of the most open approaches to writing of, of teachers that I know, which is, first of all, I want them to choose the question that they're answering. Now, sometimes that may be me providing three or four or six possible questions for them to answer. I think giving them that sense of agency is really important for the engagement for them to feel like they're writing something that they actually care about, to open up the structure a little bit. So where I get... Um, and I can sometimes get in trouble with this, for example, is, is I'll give them the option of, okay, where does everybody put the thesis in the writing? They put it in the last sentence of the introduction. Well, who decided that? Teachers decided that right. to make their grading easier. But if we want them to write something that's actually worth reading, we need to open up the boxes a little bit. So I tell them sometimes, hey, you can choose to make this a mystery, right? Give me the question at the end of your introduction, develop the whole paper, and then give your thesis in the conclusion. Wouldn't a lot of us rather read a piece in a in a new in a in the New York Times or a news magazine or or the Atlantic or wherever maybe that doesn't just give us the answers in the first paragraph, but rather provokes a question and then explores it throughout and then gives some kind of conclusion at the end. So opening up the structure a little bit, I think that one of the things that I try to do is look at the ways that people who actually publish pieces actually write. And what, when you do that, when you look at what paragraphs look like, they're a lot more fluid than we often teach our students. So how specific does that topic sentence need to be? That's a that, that that's a question that I think is worth answering and which I sometimes um, have conversations with other educators about. Maybe at some times I feel like I get too loose and then I need to structure it up a little bit, but it's that, it's that seesaw, it's that boomerang that I think, and then hopefully we find the sweet spot in the middle. But I think giving students some agency opening it up a little bit. Ultimately, would you rather, I think a question teachers need to ask themselves with is, do I care more about what the final product looks like? Or do I care more about the experience they, they have writing and giving them a meaningful, enjoyable writing process? And if the writing gets to 80 to 85% of where it would have been, but I didn't give them the quotations to use and I didn't give them the topic sentences and ask them to fill it out. And, and they got to 85% of where it would have been if I had done most of the work for them, then maybe that's a better experience for everyone. I love this idea of turning it into a mystery and we're trying a different genre. And that's something you talk about in the book. I just, I really love that. I mean, I can't begin to tell you the number of papers I've written where the student 
restates the question in mm-hmm. the first sentence, right? They've been instructed that over how many years by some teachers. And I think that that takes away a sense of agency and we want to establish that critical thinking. Yeah. And it takes that away. I think one other thing I'd I'd add in about writing that's been really powerful for students is a strategy that I use for a hook, which I call a magical camera hook. And, and, and I talk about it in the book, but I'll, I'll just try to explain it briefly. If you look at the ways that when journalists or, or historians who are really good writers start out their book, it's almost always the same, but they don't realize they're doing it. And I started out my graduate school essays like this, and then I had to stop and think, what am I actually doing? Because one of the biggest challenges as a teacher where students was, I don't know how to start my essay. I don't know how to start my essay. And as a teacher, you'd be like, uh, well, just um, write the rest of the essay and then come back to it. Maybe you'll have an idea because really you don't know what to tell them. Nobody's taught you how to do it. So you're just like, oh, you're trying a stalling tactic and maybe maybe they'll figure it out in some way. And then you move on to the next student. But so I have this strategy called the magical camera, which is basically you pick one of the most exciting moments of the story that you're telling. So let's say it's the let's say they're writing about the French Revolution and the moment they pick is the storming of the Bastille, which is just an exciting moment of the of the French Revolution. Okay. So now you've traveled back in time, you have a camera, it's a magical camera, you take a picture of that instant, but this camera records not only the sights, it records the sounds, the smells, the feelings, the textures, the taste every single type of imagery and emotion that you could possibly have and sensation that you could have, it records of that instant. And then they have to describe that one moment in the third person. It's very important that it's in the third person. It's not first person. It's not second person. It's It could be an imaginary third person, like the young soldier or whatever it may be. Record that in about six, write that down in about six to eight sentences it gives them some creative license in a history essay, right? They get to create something. They get to imagine a scene and use some imagery and make it really evocative. And then they take that, they transition into their topics. So what are the topics? They transition into kind of the question or the thesis of the essay. But just giving them that creative license, which is actually how historians often start off their books. What Now that I've said this, if you read a history book, you'll say, oh, they're doing a magical camera. It, it's a really fun way uh, to get them to start off their essays. I wish I had you in all of my social <laughs> studies. I, I really distinctly remember, and I was, I, I was a good student. I yeah. tended to do rather well, but I really remember struggling Throughout my high school years, and you know, particularly because I'd read, I'd have to read like 50 pages, mm-hmm. memorize all these facts, rehash them on some multiple choice exam and essay, and struggle to put the pieces together. I remember it was so many facts that I had to remember that I almost I missed the through line of the important aspects. And I think what you're explaining, what you're describing here helps the learner to laser into those important moments and to use all the senses to help mm-hmm. make those connections. And I think that's really powerful. Yeah. And I think that then it, it can help them also just put themselves in the past 
even though they're not writing in the first person, but get a sense of that particular moment. And that's what role play does as well. And that's why role play is such a powerful strategy for, for teaching history too. And it's not easy to do doing role plays, but students absolutely love them. It's especially the kind of Dungeons and Dragons where we're rolling dice and they take on characters and they have attributes and all of that can, can be another really engaging literacy strategy, I guess. Actually, there is, and I'm happy to connect you with a colleague of mine, but there is a whole body of research and literature that involves Dungeons and Dragons and mm. uh, and gaming um, in the classroom. So it, it's, it, it's actually been, re it's researched, it's being researched, and it can potentially be really, like you said, super engaging to students. Yeah. And we need to connect with them and to help them connect with the material and for them to really understand why history is important <laughs> to, to help them understand their future. And we need to do more of this. <laughs> I can't stress that enough. Yeah. Well, and the other thing that role play allows them to do. So, so when role play is most effective it's when they're playing ordinary people as opposed to famous people role plays sometimes in history classes can be overly scripted where the students don't actually have choice but when you put them as ordinary people in these historic events so one of the role plays i love doing most is a french revolution role play that i do that that goes on for about 12 lessons and anybody of any social class took any particular decision during the French Revolution. So there were nobility who sided with the poor and there were nobility who were against the poor and there were the third estate poor who sided with tradition and you know were really conservative religious people and there were of course the members of the third estate poor who were who were revolutionaries. So when you put them as ordinary people they can make any decision. Right. And they haven't they haven't changed what actually happens in history because people did everything. And then it gives them a chance to see how complicated some of these choices were that people had to make in history, that they had to weigh different um, different priorities that they had. Did they care more about survival or did they care more about their family or did they care more about their wealth or did they care more about their principles? And these are choices that we're all still trying to figure out today right for sure i that's i love that you you put them in ordinary you know positions and thinking about their their particular context and and seeing it through that lens is is really powerful and i love that you talk about one of the things that really struck me in the text was that you don't just incorporate role play you don't just incorporate like you incorporate so many different modalities in your in your teaching and it so have you done you've done poetry i see artwork um can you talk a little bit about the other modalities that you use in your teaching well uh, oftentimes that's a matter of student choice so of course like most history teachers i think at one point or another in our actual teaching were using artwork as sources i don't think there's anything unusual about that i think uh, teachers tend to use poems occasionally. They use artwork, they use diary entries, they use all different types of things um, to actually teach the history. And then the question is, well, what are the kids actually producing, right? So I think, and, and 
Also, I think that teachers, most teachers still at one time or another do some kinds of creative projects, but I think the difference is between thinking about producing poetry or a painting or um, let's say a debate as something or producing a newspaper article Thinking of that as the fun thing that's kind of separate from the academic versus what I'm proposing, which is that artistic history is just as rigorous. It's just as relevant. It's just as much history as as the as writing a five paragraph essay. It may actually be I mean, it may actually be more authentic to history than writing a five paragraph essay. So, yeah, I mean, there are just so many things you can do. You can have students writing perspective pieces, which are like diary entries or letters from the perspective of characters. You can have them making films, making, let's say you're doing, studying the 1920s. I remember a silent film that my students create, a couple students created, which was fantastic. One of the things I really like doing is trying to especially push them to use mediums that were used in that particular era. So I don't, I'd rather them not make it, make, let's say a film about ancient Egypt, right? I'd rather them do something that create the history with a type of history that medium that might've actually been created at the time, um, which could be painting, poetry. One of my favorite new ones is graphic histories, which a lot of historians are doing, which is what we know as comics. And then comics morphed into graphic novels, but there are a lot of historians that are producing graphic history. So I had two of them on my podcast, actually, uh, the Conversations in World History podcast. One of them is Trevor Getz, who did Abbott and the Poor Men about an African woman um, in the 1800s who brought her slave owners, her slavers illegal, and she brought them to court. Another one is Chuck Walker, who did one about uh, a Peruvian man who traveled all across the world, uh, Juan Batista Tupac Amaru. So there's a lot of great graphic histories. Dance is one where I get into big debates. Can dance be a form of history? I argue that it can, that like if you look at Alvin, Alvin Eiley Dance Company, they produce uh, an argument about history with some of they have a, a tribute to civil rights, which you can see on YouTube. Another one yes. is Flames of Paris, which so is so powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is a ballet about about the a Russian ballet about the um, French Revolution. So dance, I think some of my students have done that. Music, of course, putting on human rights conferences, which I did with one of my colleagues. If you're doing something human rights related, I like to think of like so the people who are doing the thing what are they actually producing so let's right. say let's say you're you're studying human rights well people who are working in the field of human rights what are they actually doing and so then trying to ask my students to do that and i'll just close out another one i love are mock trials which which are always really fun i my students always love to debate mm -hmm. they love to argue yeah <laughs> and you know it's interesting because i don't love debate I, I think we need to be, there's too much debate in our society. We need to be listening. And one of my former colleagues, Andy Snyder, used to, well, the first time I, he said this, I said, wow, yeah, you're right. There's 
just too much debate where we're not listening to each other. We need to encourage the students to listen to each other and and have a conversation. The problem is, is they do love debate. So I always do, I, I always do at least one debate a year because they just love that, that arguing and and there's nothing wrong with it. But um there's so there's this one format that some people use called structured academic controversy, which is to try to get them to talk to each other a little bit more rather than just argue. Yes. And I've also done Socratic seminars mm -hmm. uh, on the same vein, for sure. Um, I would thank you so much for for joining my podcast. Can you tell the audience a little bit about your podcast? Sure. Well, I started it not that long ago, but it's conversations in world history. And it's it's kind of fits in with what I've been talking about. Podcast is a way I'm learning a huge amount of history. And so many people are. So I have actually historians and social studies teachers on to talk, the historians to talk about their works of history in about 30 minutes to make it digestible for a general audience, but also as something that teachers could use and to use with students. And I also talk to social studies teachers to think about how we're teaching world history. I think that there's a ton with American history. There's just so much out there, but there's just a little bit less of focus on world history. And I love world history. So that's conversations of world history. And, and then I'll just throw out my other love, which we didn't talk about, which are picture books, which is another thing that kids can produce. We tell a lot of history these days through picture books. And I... um. I'm, I'm enjoying, I have two picture books coming out next year with Apples and Honey Press. So that's, that's, that's been my, oh my real gosh. creative, that's been my real creative side. And that's, um, that's super fun. Oh, how exciting. Is there a website uh, that you'd like to direct people to? Uh, well, people could, davidsharon.com. It has, has all of my stuff and, and the picture books, hopefully when they come out, the first one is called Big Bad Wolf's Yom Kippur, um, which is, so they're, they're both Jewish themed picture books and it should be a lot of fun. Thank you so much for joining us today. I, it's been such a pleasure talking about social studies and all of your incredible, great ideas. Thank Thanks you. Thanks so much, Joanna. Thanks for having me on. It's been fun as well. Thanks so much for listening today. Don't forget to subscribe to the Literacy Landscapes podcast. I'd also like to give a shout out to my dear friend Indira for her wordsmithing and helping me to think through the introduction that I read to this podcast. I also want to thank my son Max and his amazing guitar teacher James for this theme song. Take care and see you on the next episode.